the things we sing and read and pray and so much of it is meant to convey. We want to convey to God's people His love and acceptance of you and assurance of your salvation. Assurance of salvation, I think, is something that God wants all of His people to enjoy. But not everyone does. There are a lot of different reasons we wrestle with uh, that sense of assurance, that, uh, that uh, existential, that subjective, that personal sense of God's love and acceptance with us. So though some of us may wrestle with it, I believe it is what God has for us, what God wants for us. So today we are, in many ways, talking about the assurance of salvation. The sermon is perfected for all time. We see this in verse 14, and around this, this verse and this theme, the rest of it is the context for understanding uh, the assurance that God gives us in Christ. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. Hear then the word of God. For since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, not, otherwise would they not have ceased To be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said, Above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, and these are offered according to the law. But then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool, a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, I will write them On their minds, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning because we love you. We long to give our hearts to you in worship. We long to know you and to love you day by day and to walk with you, to be pleasing to you. 
to have you working in our lives and us responding to your grace. Father, we, we need you. And so we gather. And we long for you to work in us and among us. Will you speak now by the power of your words to capture our hearts and our imaginations by your grace and what you have done for us in Christ that we may rest in the hope that we have in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, if a person is tried for a crime in our country, in most countries, if you are tried for a crime and at the end of the trial uh, you are found innocent, the court declares you innocent and they set you free. You've seen all the courtroom dramas, everybody stands for the reading, the, how has the jury found and they, you know, and they read it, we the jury find the defendant not guilty. Declares them innocent. They're justified in court. So in the eyes of the court, they are free and innocent. And they can never be tried for that crime again. You can't be tried for the same crime twice. It's called double jeopardy. It's a thing that says that you can't be tried for that crime. If, you, if you've been through the trial and the court has found you innocent and has justified you, has declared you not guilty, it can never try you for that crime again. You stand justified in regards to that crime forever. Colossians 2.14 says, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Canceled it. The record that stood against us, the legal demands, the indictment that was against us, that for which we were on trial, so to speak, in the court and the justice of God. This, he said, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. The court has convened The verdict has been read. It was nailed to the cross. The demands of justice were satisfied. God said to his people whose faith is in Christ, not guilty. My friends, you can never, ever be tried for those things again. There is no double jeopardy with God. If he has forgiven you, Your sins are forgiven. By a single offering, verse 14, we were just reading, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The debt has been paid forever for all time. The author here is assuring us of our salvation, the certainty of our eternal life. He's telling you that it's a done deal. Jesus has done it. He's perfected us for all time. The verdict is out. The verdict is in. The verdict is in. Not guilty. This is the assurance of our salvation. It's God's gift to every believer. The verdict has already been pronounced. Every person who genuinely puts their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, he says, has been perfected for all time. And there will be no double jeopardy. He will not try you again. You will not come under that indictment again. To 
is why in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 25, it says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. He's able to save to the uttermost. That is, to the uttermost of our sin. That is, all of our sin, however deep it was, however wide it was, however long, wide, and deep it was, to the uttermost of our sin, to the last one of them, past, present, and future. He's able to save to the uttermost of time. Not just for a little while, not for a short time, but he has perfected for all time. He is able to save to the uttermost, to the depths of your sin for all time, to the uttermost. He is able to save us. A.W. Tozer says, he foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, and yet nevertheless, he fixed his heart upon me. He knew my faults and foibles and my failings. He knew the sin that I would continue to struggle with. He knew it. It's a surprise to me. You stumble into it day by day and you're surprised at the depths of your own sinfulness. But he was not surprised. And when he paid the price for it, he didn't pay for the stuff you could see at that moment. He didn't pay for the stuff that you had done to that moment. He knew the depths of it, both in terms of all what you could not see and all that you didn't even know you were going to do. He knew. And when he paid the price, he paid it all. You did not earn your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. You can't contribute to your salvation. God in his grace has loved us and saved us, and he did it, it says, completely and forever. He did everything that is necessary to secure eternal life for us. I think this is what Romans 8, and sometimes we keep coming back to this verse, because I think it says that God has done everything from beginning to end. Right? That those whom he predestined, when did that happen? It says in Ephesians 1 that we were predestined, chosen in Christ, predestined before the foundations of the world. So before the foundations of the world, those he predestined, he calls. Those he calls, he justified. The verdict is in, not guilty. Those he predestined, he calls and he justifies. And those he glorifies. In other words, from the very beginning, even before the beginning, before the world was made to glory, what all is said and done, God did it. He has justified for all time those who come to him in Christ. Now, not everybody, every believer enjoys the sense of confidence. Part of the reason for that is that you're looking at yourself and not him. You're looking at your lack of righteousness rather than his perfect righteousness. You're wondering if you're good enough rather than understanding Jesus is perfectly righteous in your place. He, he wants us all to have that sense of confidence that Christ is enough, that he did it all. The Bible communicates this in so many ways, and I, at the risk of, 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 of just, I guess, burying you under it, I'm going to read a couple of longer texts where, where, it, where it just says it again and again in, in clear ways. You have people that will argue with it and fight with it and, you know, is it true? And, you know, whether I'm just wrestling in my own soul or other people just say it's not true, I'm just like, look at the Scripture. It labors to tell you. John chapter 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Right? He is perfected for all time. And so I give them eternal life. What is the result of having eternal life? When Jesus gives it to you, they will never perish. So when would it might be that some of us might perish if we are in Christ and he has 
He gave us eternal life. They will never perish. And so he goes on to say, in case you, you know, you're wondering about the, the, the strength of all of this, you know, that I gave them life, you'll never perish. He says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. Right, my friends, no one can. I gave it to you. You can't perish. Why? Because I have you literally in the palm of my hands. And then he says, now, if you doubt me, if you doubt that I can pull this off, you need to understand my father, who has given you to me, is greater than everything, and no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. He has you in his hand. He is perfected for all time and giving you eternal life. You will never perish. You will never be lost because you are held in the double grip of grace of the father and the son who say, no one is going to get you out of their hands. Romans chapter 8 does this. It asks the very question about assurance, right? It's the question of assurance. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is one of those passages that you're going to read it. It says who shall separate us, but it's really who or what. Because as you go through the rest of this text, it's going to list a bunch of things. It's going to list all kinds of stuff you can go through. Tribulations or trials or famines, whether you lose money or the nation goes to war. If all things go right by sword and, and all the things that can happen. But then it lists things that go beyond just circumstances that could happen. It talks about the present and future life. And, and it says, and it's answering this question, who or what can separate you from Christ what can do it (laughs) what can shake my confidence the assurance of my salvation that I might that I might somehow get separated from the love that is mine in Christ shall tribulation do it shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword no in all these things, you, you're not only going to be, not be separated, but you are more than conquerors, not because you're strong and smart, but because he loved you and he set his love on you before the foundations of the world. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, there's no spiritual power in the universe that can wrench me from the hand of Christ, nor things that are present, nor things that come. I don't have to fear the future. There's no, there's no thing to come. He says, not the past, not the future. There's nothing I need to fear because there's no power. There's no height nor death. And he's like, and in case you're going to try to smuggle something in here, Nothing else in all of creation is going to be able to to do it, to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. And the reason is, verse 14, that by a single offering, once and for all, one offering, past, present, and future sins, all of our sins, all of the sin of God people put in Christ by one offering he has perfected for all time. Assurance of salvation comes to those who know that Jesus paid it all. That it is in fact finished. And that we were in fact made righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And so we look away from ourselves and our weakness and we look to the strength and the beauty and the wonder that is our Savior in whom all things are ours. All of this He gives to us 
you know, this perfected by all time, and he's presenting this truth to, to the Jewish church in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices. See, the book of Hebrews is being written, we're pretty sure, before the temple is destroyed. The temple is destroyed in 70 AD. We talked about this by the Romans. The Jews rebel. And in this rebellion, the Romans come down like a hammer. And they destroy Jerusalem, tear down its walls, slaughter and scatter its inhabitants, and destroy the temple. And to this day, the temple's never been rebuilt. This conversation probably wouldn't be as strong after that point because there are no more sacrifices. There has not been a Jewish sacrifice since 70 AD when it was all destroyed. But these guys, the temple is still there. I think that's why God in his sovereignty destroyed it or allowed it to be destroyed. Because this this temptation for them to go back and, and he is saying these sacrifices are still going on in Jerusalem and Paul is trying to tell them and the apostles are trying to tell them Christ did it all. Those sacrifices are no longer necessary. You know, they don't even, they weren't, they, they couldn't even do it. Right? This is verse 1. He says all of this, you're contrasting it to the Old Testament. He is saying since the law, all of those sacrifices, the temple, the the priesthood, all of this is just a shadow of the good things that were going to come in Christ, of the true form of Jesus, the true priest going into heaven in the presence of God. This all, and he says, and it can never by the same sacrifices perfect those who come. Right? So this, he's perfected all time, he's being contrasted with this. They could never perfect. They could never do it. They could never save anyone. And they could never save the people he is writing to. Those who drew near to worship with the blood of bulls and goats were not perfected for all time. Because they had to come back tomorrow and do it again. And the next day, and the next week, and the next month, and the next year. More blood, seeking forgiveness. Verse 2, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered. If they could make perfect, if you could offer that sacrifice, it would bring the forgiveness. He says, oh, they would have stopped offering. But it didn't didn't cover their sins, past, present, and future. So they had to come back tomorrow. There was no assurance of salvation. I had to bring another sacrifice tomorrow and again. And he says all of this is the opposite of the assurance of salvation. Verse 3, it says, in these sacrifices... there's not the assurance that your sins are forgiven. No, these sacrifices in these Old Testament ones that kept coming, there's a reminder of your sin. It's not not telling you your sins are forgiven, you're done, you know, see you later. It's telling you come back tomorrow because you're sinful. Come back tomorrow. They were a reminder of sin. They They didn't communicate that forgiveness and that assurance. They said there needs to be more blood and more sacrifice. It's not done. It's not done. It's incomplete. Which is why in verse 4, it's a clear statement that that there is no salvation under Old Testament law. For it is impossible by the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All of those bulls and goats didn't cover any sins. Didn't take away any of them. Right? And shows that there's no salvation uh, under Old Testament law. Why? Because the law showed them they were sinful. Right? You shall not. And they did. All right, and so built into the law is the law of sacrifice, right? To cover your sin, but they had to keep doing that. And the blood of bulls and goats didn't actually take away those sins. The law is revealing their sin. These sacrifices are not actually taking away their sin. There's no salvation here. It goes on as far as to say in verse 5 and following, 
It goes as far as to say God didn't desire these sacrifices. He's not pleased in these sacrifices. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came in the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure in them, but behold, I have come to do your will in the body that you have prepared for me, O God. Even as it is written. And so in verse 8, he says to them, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and the offerings and the burnt offerings and the sin offering and all those offerings, even though they're being offered according to the law of God. So when he says he neither desired them or took pleasure in them, he is saying in the sense that they're not completing the job that they're pointing to. They're pointing to forgiveness, but they're not accomplishing forgiveness. God is not satisfied. His justice is not satisfied. In that sense, he takes no pleasure in them. It's not a done deal. This is not what is necessary, ultimately. Even though they're being offered according to the law. In other words, God commanded all those sacrifices. But he says, ultimately, they don't please me. Then why? Why? Why command the sacrifices? And the answer is so simple, is that it's all a placeholder for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is what Jesus says so. He started in the scripture, he started with Moses, and he showed them all about himself in the scripture. It's all about him, right? Jesus is not going to come for centuries and these sacrifices are being given and offered and God commands them. And Jesus isn't going to come for centuries. And so it's a way though, it's a way. God gives them, God commands them because it's a way for his people to participate in the sacrifice of Christ. It's a a way for them to anticipate the sacrifice of Christ. It's a way to give them a substitute that while it's not the substitute they need, it's the substitute they're going to get until the one comes. Think about the Old Testament worshiper, right? They're aware of God's holiness, right? If you don't get anything from reading the Old Testament, you will get God is holy and just. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. So Old Testament worshipers come, they're aware of God's holiness. They're aware of their sin through the law. He has given them the law, right? And if nothing else, it reveals they can't do it all which is why there are so many sacrifices. They're aware of his holiness. They're aware of their sin, and they're aware of their need for forgiveness. And though, So they're coming to worship day by day, and they're bringing a sacrifice. They're bringing a substitute. They're bringing an animal, and they're going to offer its life in their place. They're going to offer it in their place. It's going to die for them. Right? So God is teaching them, you can offer a substitute that can die in your place. What did they believe? They were believing this. They were believing that God in his grace would accept the blood of a substitute and forgive me of my sins. Right? And that's the gospel, is it not? They're saved by grace through faith. They weren't saved by the law. They failed to keep the law, which is why they're offering sacrifices. And the sacrifice was this. They were coming, believing that God in his grace is going to accept this substitute to die in my place and forgive me of my sins and reconcile me to himself. By grace, 
through faith. So the animal sacrifices are not actually cleansing sin. They're not actually taking away sin. And so God doesn't take pleasure in them in that sense, but they are a placeholder for the one who would. They didn't know the animals weren't enough. They didn't know Jesus' name, but God did. God knew the animals weren't enough, and they knew Jesus would come and pay the price that these animals are failing to pay. But they're trusting God to accept the sacrifice, the, the substitute for them and to forgive them by grace because blood was shed in their place and that blood would one day be shed and they will be saved. The Old Testament saves are saved, but I will tell you now, there's not a human being in the history of the world if they are saved and right with God that is saved and right with God in any other way than the blood of Jesus Christ. God accepted the sacrifice not because it was acceptable, but he accepted it because one day Jesus would ultimately pay that price. Hebrews 9, 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so the whole importance and significance of all the Old Testament sacrifices is Jesus. They're just a placeholder. This is why running parallel to all of this in verses 5 to 8, running parallel to what he is saying here about the inadequacy of the Old Testament sacrifices and not actually covering sin and God not actually taking pleasure in them, running parallel to this is that promise, right? Looking at verse 5 where he says, sacrifices and offerings you didn't desire, but a body you have prepared for me, right? That, my friends, is Christmas, when God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, creates a body in, the, in a virgin's womb. He creates a body in a virgin's womb. He creates a, a body he has prepared for his son. Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he could bleed and die to purify and perfect God's people for all time. And so in verses 7 to 9, it talks about him. He's coming to do the Father's will. I said, behold, I've come to do your will. Verse 9, he added, behold, I've come to do your will. And his will is that he would do away with the first in order to establish the second, to do away with the temple and the sacrifices and the whole business, to establish the new, which is what? Jesus. Who is the point of it all? to accomplish what the Old Testament sacrifices never could. And this is the will of the Father then in verse 10. What is the will? I come to do your will. What is his will? And by that will, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The will of the Father is that you would be sanctified once and for all that it would be done, that his people would be clean, that his people would be cleansed and perfected so they would be accepted, so that they would have the not guilty verdict once and for all. There'd be no double jeopardy. We're not going to come here and do this again. His will is you would be sanctified once and for all, cleansed and forgiven to belong to him. His will is you would be able to belong to him, come to him, worship him freely, walk with him. And this is all accomplished. His will is accomplished in what Jesus has done. Titus 2.14 puts it this way. He sent Jesus to purify a people for his own possession. 
The Old Testament could never do it. But it was all pointing to and waiting for the one who could. And so in verse 12, I think it's just such a beautiful picture of the completeness of his work. That is finished. Verse 12, that it says that when Christ had offered for all time that single sacrifice, meaning there's not going to be any more, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. He offered that one single sacrifice for all time, meaning there won't be another one. There doesn't need to be another one. That one completed. It did everything that needed to be done. He accomplished the Father's will in that one sacrifice, and he sat down. He's seated. It was finished. There's nothing more to be done to save his people. There's nothing more to be done to cleanse his people. There's nothing more to be done so that all of your sins, the ones that you have ever committed, every sin of every one of his people is covered, paid for, and done. So he sat down. Seated at the right hand of the Almighty. In verse 13, and now he waits. He's sitting and he's waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for his victory to be fully consummated, for, for, for the victory he won in the cross and the resurrection to come to its full consummation when, when his, all of his enemies are, are submitted and the world is once again uh, the kingdom of God, the, the whole globe from shore to shore, east to west, north to south. He's waiting. Why is he waiting? He's sitting and he's waiting. Why? Because the work is done. In that sense. Now I would say that that's, that's conveying our salvation and that, that Jesus is, is at work. Right? He is with us day by day. There's so much. And he, and he conveys that there's that sense. But this work, and that's just that picture, the, just a the beautiful picture he wants you to have. As far as the work is in terms of all that needs to be done until that victory day and that consummation comes, it's been done. And he's just sitting there waiting for it. There's nothing else for him to do. My friends, there's nothing else for you to do. Sometimes we're very confused about that. We want to help him out. Surely there's some things I can do to help this along, right? To help me and my soul along, you know, to, to somehow, you know, help, help my salvation project get completed. Jesus sat down and he says, you need to sit down. When it comes to this issue, Hebrews 1, verse 3, it says, He is a radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This almighty God and making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. It is finished by a single offering. And this is the essence of the new covenant. You see it in 15 to 17. He's describing the new covenant and writing the law in our hearts. And in verse 17, he, he says, this comes down to the essence of it. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds. No more. There's no double jeopardy. I will, I will remember them no more. Not guilty has been spoken over the crimes of his people. And the not guilty verdict has come in. And so I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Ever. 
to contemplate that, all of my sin and my lawless deeds that I still wrestle with, he will not remember them. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west. You're saying if you travel as far as you can east and you go west, let's go linear for the moment. You can't get any further away. Right? And so he says, like in Micah 7.19, he will cast them to the depths of the sea. There are places in the sea even now where we can't reach the bottom. What is he saying? They're gone. I will remember them no more. Let me just give you three quick applications as we come to the Lord's table. Number one is, my friends, it's so obvious. Our hope and our faith needs to be in Jesus Christ alone. The gospel is this. Jesus plus nothing. And you want to put in there, I try hard, I work hard, I want to be good. You know, I I was a good person today. I made these laws. You know, that's what the the rich young ruler, which which of the commandments, you know, do I need to obey? How can I, Jesus plus, what can you contribute? Jesus plus nothing. He's saying trust in him. It is an offense. He said the will of the Father is this, that Jesus should make this single once for all offering to purify a people for himself and perfect them for all time. And it is offense to the will of God that we should try to add anything to it, that we should trust in anything other than that. It's an offense to the work of Christ and its completeness. If we trust in anything other than Christ and what he has done for us to put even a little hope for our acceptance with God in anything other than Jesus, how I did today, right, or, or, or anything else, says it's an offense. What are you saying? It isn't done? You're saying it's not complete? You're saying I, I, I somehow mismanaged the whole project? Jesus better get back up, or at least you better get up and get doing. Right? It's not 60-40, you know, he does more than me, but I'm trying real hard. Right? It's not even 90-10, you know, he does most of it, but I'm trying, you know, I, I'll contribute, you know. Jesus says it's 100% me. And none of you when it comes to your salvation. You either trust in me or you trust in something else. But those are your options. He has done it all. There's nothing to contribute. And so we can look at it this way. The second thing is this. We can look at it this way. Since the work is done for us in Christ and by Christ, we too sit down. When it comes to trying to earn our salvation or contribute to our salvation or make God, you know, accept us or be pleased with us in that sense to to be saved, he says, we need to sit down. There's nothing for you to do because for you to think there's something for you to do is to say that what he did is not enough. Scripture actually says this, Ephesians 2, verses 5 to 7. It says, by grace you have been saved. What does he mean by grace? You didn't do it. He did it. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up by that grace and seated us with him, right? He he did it, and he sat down, and he said, now when you put your trust in him, he sits you down too. And what are you waiting for? For the day that's coming, for the coming ages, when the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward in Christ is going to be manifest through the ages. I'm just waiting for the consummation of it all. 
he sat down and God said, sat you down with him. It is finished. We share in the completeness. Now, I'm going to say this quickly as we end. This does not mean that we don't strive for a life that is pleasing to God. And I'll preach whole sermons down that road. But here's the thing. The scripture thinks, God thinks, the gospel thinks that the best soil in which a holy life can grow is the full and complete mercy of God in Christ. Not thinking that I've got to perform or contribute or in some way, you know, contribute and save myself. Right? There are those who say, you know, if you preach full and complete forgiveness to people, they'll just take it as a blank check to do whatever they want. I would say, if that's the case, you don't know Jesus. But the the scripture preaches a full and free. And it seems to think that if you are born again, and that if you behold anyone who's in Christ as a new creature, and you know and experience the grace that I'm talking about, he says that changes everything, and that's the soil in which to joyfully Pursue a life in Christ because you want to, full of his spirit and his grace. Where you can get up day by day and his mercy is new every morning, right? And he brushes you off and he puts you back in the saddle to try again and strive again and to follow him. And day by day be more and more like Jesus. But the soil for that is the fact that you are working from a place of rest. When it comes to your salvation, you're already sitting down and waiting for the good things that are to come. But day by day, we pursue him and walk with him and, 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 and the kingdom that he is seeking and the holiness that he is sharing. And we are pursuing it, but we work for those things from a place of grace. And that's the last thing I would say is that the perfected salvation in Christ is the fountain from which the whole Christian life flows. We're free. It is for freedom that he has set us free. Free to love him, free to serve him, free to strive. And in many ways, my friend, even free to fail. Not to be complacent in our failures, to hate and repent of our failures because we love him and we want to be like him. But we're free. If you make the tree good, Jesus said, its fruit will be good. He thinks the best place for For good fruit is a good righteous tree. You want righteous fruit or you need a righteous tree? You make the tree good first and then you're going to get good fruit. Apart from me, he says you can do nothing, but if you abide in Christ and you rest in his finished work, he says you will bear much fruit. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you don't leave us guessing and wondering what the verdict will be. Or day by day, you leave us struggling to wonder if you have loved us and if we're safe. We thank you for the gospel and the truths that you have communicated and labored to write upon our souls that Jesus has paid it all. And all to him we owe. That he alone and only him, Father, help us to put our faith, our hope, and trust. Help us to look away from ourselves, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith in whom alone we have hope. Amen.